Well, it is a joy to sing, to worship, to gather together. Such a joy to be able to do so. And we want to come today and look at God's Word. We want to continue in our worship. All that we do here is worship, uh, singing, prayer, scripture reading, and the sermon. We want our minds to be changed by the scripture, and we want to act upon what it is that we've learned. Today, we're continuing in our exposition of Ephesians. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is really part two of a whole paragraph that Paul's put together here on unity through a diversity of Christ's gifts. The paragraph is 7 all the way through 16. We looked at 7 through 10 last week. Today I want to look at 11 through 13. And remember the, the concept here, the theme is unity. Is that an important word for our church right now, for our world right now? Everybody talks about unity right now, and and there's riots, and there's protests, and buildings are burning, and there's all this tension in our country and in the world. There's diversity, and that's, that's forced often upon people. Division, but not in the church. The only diversity we have is, is that we're each individuals before Christ given certain gifts. We're to be unified in the church. We're not to be like the world. We're not to bring worldliness into the church and divide. We're to bring unity. And if you ever wonder if the Bible is relevant, is it relevant for us today? I think right now is a good time to look at this passage and say, yes, of course it's relevant. Of course it's relevant. The main theme of the first half of chapter 4 is unity. And not only is the world divided, but many of these teachings are being brought into the church and the church is being divided. And Paul says we're to be united. We're to focus on the right things. That's, That's what unites us. And we're to serve one another with our gifts. That's what unites us. Let me just read to you 4, 7 through 16 so you can get the context of our passage today. The Apostle Paul writing under the authority of Christ. Really the the words of Christ coming through Paul here. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The title of today's message is Building Up the Body. You saw that language used quite a bit. 
Paul's really addressing in the overall context of unity here, the questions that we might ask today. How is the local church to function? That's a question we asked when we planted this church. Every church ought to ask that. How is the local church to function? Did, did Christ leave us with any idea on how things are to be done and worked out and, and function in the church? Did he leave us anything on that? How it's to be structured? And who's going to do the work of ministry? Is it just the paid staff? Is it just the leadership? Or is it the whole church? Are we to adopt the world's policies for success in the church? Are we just to come to church and say, you know, it worked well in that corporation. It worked well with that business. Let's bring those ideas into the church and set it up like a corporation or like a government. No, the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us how the church is to function. Christ gives us a clear answer here. He did not leave us to our own devices. He did not leave us to wonder, you know, I wonder who's to teach and what's a service to look like and who's to lead. Churches are planted every day that ask that question and never find the answer in Scripture. And so they just end up picking the people who maybe have been the Christians the longest to be the leaders. You know, the Bible gives us clear answers. And Paul says that all of these gifts teach us how the church is to function and that unites us. That unites us. It's all about being united in Christ. So the first 16 verses of chapter 4 here focus on unity. And each person is to be unified in the local church, in the body. There's not to be divisions. There's not to be groups. There's not to be division in the church where two groups are competing for power. We're not doing an election process. We don't have two different parties here like we often see in government. He says we're to be unified. He implored us. He encouraged us to do that in our personal lives as we interact with one another in the church. That's really one through three. And four through six was to be unified around the doctrine. Doctrine. The gospel, who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, all the things that they do. And now he's moved into this gifting paragraph. And he said that Christ gave each person a grace gift. Not just salvation, not just sanctification, but each of you have a gift to use in the church, he said. And when we do that, we proclaim a victory. We proclaim that he ascended on high, Paul says. And he quoted from the Old Testament to prove it. You're doing something when you serve others. You're not just doing something for yourself or for the church. You're saying something about Christ. That was the message last week. Now here in 11 through 13, he's going to specify some of the gifts that he gives the church. Last week, we looked at individual gifts. We talked about mercy, teaching, administrations, helps, and so on. But now he's going to talk about offices that he gives to the church. Leadership offices that he gives to the church. These are gifts as well. And so he's going to list them and talk about how they help the church to be united. How they help the church to be united. So here's the main point of this passage, 11 through 13. Christ our Lord gave gifted offices to the church so that we might build up each other as members of the church into a mature body. Maturity, that's the goal. The goal is a mature body. My preaching here is, is not about me having a job. It's not about me getting attention. 
the goal of this right here is to mature us all as a body. The goal of all of these things we're about to study is to make us mature, to grow up. We'll look more at this next week, but this idea that you're a baby in the faith your whole life is not biblical. That you're saved so you can sit back and sort of take it easy. Nowhere in the New Testament is that ever said. We're to grow up. We're to be mature. And it starts with making sure we understand these office gifts that Christ gave. So he gave us all gifts, but he put some people in positions of leadership. And so let's look at that first. The uniqueness of the gifts. Verse 11. That's my first point today. The uniqueness of the gifts. Christ gave very specific gifted leaders to the church. He didn't leave it up to us to vote in a president of the church, to make up special leadership titles and offices. There's no pope here in this list, no cardinals. There is a bishop, but it's not the kind of bishop that you often hear about. There's a very specific, unique list of gifts. First of all, just notice it says, He gave. He gave. We do not give. We do not get to determine. He gave, carries the idea that it's been appointed to a special responsibility. A person has been appointed to these offices is the idea. Christ creates the office, the title, if you want to call it that, but it's really a a position in the church. And then he fills that position with gifted men to lead for edification. The risen Christ. The one who's ascended that we just saw in, in verse 10. He's the source of these gifts. So you really can't be fighting over your gifts or getting mad at God over your gifts, getting upset that you can't be this other person that you see in the church. He's gifted you individually. You've got to figure out what that is. And Paul says, while we're on the subject of gifts, I want to tell you about these offices that Christ has given the church. There's five of them. Five of them. Remember, they're both offices and gifts. Some as apostles. That's the first one. Some as apostles. The basic meaning of an apostle is a sent one, a messenger. These are messengers of Christ that meet specific qualifications. They're technical terms. It's not when the Bible sometimes says they sent a messenger with a letter. These are the 12 apostles plus Paul. Messengers of Christ that meet specific qualifications. What are they? There's three in the Bible. Number one, a witness to the resurrected Christ. You can't be an apostle unless he's appointed you and you have witnessed him after the resurrection, in the flesh. In Acts 1.22, they say, who's going to replace Judas? Well, they start looking around and they say, someone who's been with us and someone who has witnessed him, him who was raised from the dead. Number two, they have to be appointed by Christ himself. No one in the Bible gets to call themselves an apostle unless Christ first calls them an apostle. He first appoints them to ministry. We read of the original 12 in the gospel accounts. And he says, come, follow me. And he shows up to each one of them and calls them. He appoints them. And we see Paul talk about this a lot. Paul's apostleship is challenged. And where does he go back to? That Jesus has appointed him. He often says, not sent through the agency of men, but through Christ Jesus. Christ sent him. Christ appointed him. And the third qualification is to confirm that message that they are an apostle, to confirm it 
by miraculous signs. If you want to look up some verses on that, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. You have to see Christ in the flesh. You have to be appointed specifically by him. And you've got to do miraculous signs to show that you're an apostle. That's how they're qualified. Now it's clear that this office is no longer around in the church today. They were given at the beginning for a specific reason. What was the reason? That they might take the gospel out. These were men trained individually by Christ to plant churches, to take the gospel to the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles. They started the church. Back in 2.10, we saw that they were the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles make up part of the foundation of the church. You don't lay a foundation twice, and no one can match up to these qualifications. But Paul says these are important. Apostles are important. You know where we see the importance of apostles today? In the New Testament. We get our New Testament from apostles, or our men like Luke and Mark who were overseen by apostles as they wrote. God inspired them to write. He made sure the word was inerrant, and the apostles were there with them. They were interviewing the apostles, Luke was, Mark was. So the importance is they founded the church. Christ sent them out and he said, go, take the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, bring them into the church and teach them all that I've commanded you and to observe all of those commands. That's the apostles' job. They were a gift to the early church. And anybody who claims to be one today is not meeting these qualifications. They've passed away. Apostles have that gift. Secondly, some as prophets. So we have apostles. They're part of the foundation, but also these prophets are part of the foundation. Who are these prophets? There's a lot of confusion over prophecy. Someone said last week that I, I kind of went fast through prophecy in tongues when I read those gifts last week. Well, we didn't spend much time on them because this week we're going to talk about prophecy and, and the Lord will open up another time to talk about tongues. I've done that in theology class that we've had here. You can find those on our website. Who are these prophets? Well, these are New Testament prophets. They had the gift of prophecy. They, they gave completely accurate and fully authoritative declaration of God's word. There's no New Testament when the church starts. How do you get information on how the church should go, how the church should function, how to deal with this false teaching, how to deal with that? No one has a perfect memory, not even the apostles. And so God gave gifted prophets to the early church. They had revelation directly from God. When they spoke prophecy, they spoke God's word. And people listened. And Paul mentions prophecy as a gift. It is a gift. And, it, and it, these people who had prophecy were leaders in the church. Each congregation likely had one or more of these prophets. And the apostles likely had the gift of prophecy as well. Even women were called prophets in the New Testament. Men and women. I said earlier, men, because most of this list is made up of, of men, we'll see in Scripture, but we also have women as prophets. These are not elders. These are not pastors. These are prophets speaking directly the words that God gave them. Now, they had to pass the prophecy test. I already gave you the three tests for an apostle. Well, there's three tests for a prophet as well. And I'll just go quickly through them. They had to be doctrinally orthodox. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If somebody comes and they prophesy something, 
But in what they say, they're teaching falsely. They're not a prophet of God, he said. Doesn't even matter if it comes true what they said. If they have taught against the truth of God's word, in any way, they are not a true prophet. Number two, they had to have moral integrity. We see this in Jeremiah 23, 14. Also in Jesus' teaching in Matthew. In Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets. Why? Because they lead you astray. Because they tell you Christ is going to return at a certain time. Because they write all kinds of extra biblical information that they want you to follow. But, he says, watch out for their moral integrity. They say they're a prophet, and then they go and live a sinful lifestyle. They go and live like Christ won't return. And then thirdly, they have to accurately predict what's happening in the future. Predictive accuracy. Deuteronomy 18. Prophets were stoned in the Old Testament. If they said something would happen, and they said, I heard this from God, and it didn't happen, they were stoned for it. They were stoned for it. Those don't go away in the New Testament. We don't, we don't see anywhere where it says, okay, you're a New Testament prophet. You don't have to follow what God said on that in the Old. Now, these are New Testament prophets, but they still have to obey those tests in the Old Testament. We, as we listen to people who say they're prophets, we can just test them right here. No one meets that. Even if we were talking to somebody who said there's prophets today, who meets all of those? No one. All the people who call themselves prophets don't meet these three qualifications. But I would argue that these have passed away as well. Go back to Ephesians 2.20. I said 2.10 earlier, but it's 2.20. There's this household, there's this temple being built. Christ is the cornerstone. And it says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Two offices being mentioned in this list. They're the first two. Why? They're the foundation. And the foundation's been laid. And now what's going on top of the foundation? All the stones. You, as you get saved, you're a brick and you go here and you have these gifts. And you're a brick and you go here and you're a brick and you go here. Now, does it make sense to come and take a foundation and lay it again? You don't do that in a building. You don't have to be a carpenter. You don't have to be a builder to realize the foundation gets laid once. So we take the test of prophecy. We take the idea that Paul says the foundation's already been laid. And we look at church history. These prophets have passed away. They were for a time. What was their purpose? To give the revelation directly from God. What happened as the prophets were passing on? That gift was passing away. What happened? The scripture was complete. The scripture was finished. We don't know when the last prophet lived. But we do know as we read Paul's letters, he mentions less and less of it. By the time you get to the end of his life in First and Second Timothy and Titus, he's not even talking about prophecy in tongues anymore. Huge problem in the early church. He writes a lot of First Corinthians on those gifts. By the time he gets to Timothy, Titus, problems in the church. No mention of prophecy. No mention of tongues. But they were instrumental in the early church. They were the foundation. And he's writing to people who are still living in that time with apostles and prophets. But we ought to be thankful. They built the church. They built the foundation. And now we get to be a part of that history. The third in the list is some as evangelists. So some are called to be prophets, uh, apostles, and then prophets and evangelists, he says. Now, the evangelist's primary ministry is directed at the conversion of the lost 
to come to Christ. We only get one person in the New Testament called an evangelist. And that's Philip in Acts 8. He takes the gospel to a group of people called the Samaritans. And then he takes the gospel to one individual, the Ethiopian eunuch, who comes to faith as a result of his evangelism, which comes from Scripture, by the way, from Isaiah. Philip is an evangelist. Timothy's told to do the work of an evangelist. All elders, all pastors should do the work of an evangelist. They may not be evangelists necessarily, but they do the work of it by proclaiming the gospel. The gift of evangelism, what is it? Well, it's different than a teacher of the Bible. A teacher is focused on those in the church, and an evangelist is taking the gospel from the Bible to those outside the church. An evangelist goes to people. They have a special ability to talk to people, a love for the lost. They take the gospel where it's not been heard. And they see people saved, and they bring them into the church. Now, when you hear evangelists, don't just think what I saw on TV growing up. No, an evangelist in the Bible was somebody who took the gospel to a region that did not know the gospel, and they planted churches. They planted churches. Now, some argue that this gift is no longer around. I think it is. I think we see this in a missionary. As they are sent out from a church, they take the gospel to a place that's not well known. They plant a church. And then they do it again. And they do it again. Or they train up church planters in that region. Not necessarily a pastor who starts a church and stays there. No, this is a person who loves to take the gospel to the lost. They love to see an area have church planting going on in it. And they work at that. They're they're especially gifted at that. And they can train up people in the church. That's how they build up the church. Not only are people coming in as new members through an evangelist work, but they're also showing us how to do evangelism. Evangelists are important. But it does not excuse us from evangelizing the lost. You can't say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't don't have that office. Well, you're not a missionary in the sense of going to another region where the gospel is not known, planting churches. But we're all called to evangelize as part of the Great Commission. So when we talk about gifts, it's not like, well, he has the gift of serving, so I don't have to serve. No, we all serve. He just loves to do it and is really good at it. I still got to serve if I see a need. Well, I might not be an evangelist. I still need to evangelize. That's why Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Think of George Whitfield as he came to the Americas in the 1700s and he preached the gospel to large crowds. He did not stay on. He did not plant a church and become their pastor and and stop evangelizing. He continued throughout America, the American colonies and, and Britain, proclaiming the gospel, seeing large crowds come and hear and many converted. So I think of a modern-day missionary best fits this term. Some as pastors. Number four is pastors. This is often a misunderstood office in the church today. We've created a certain idea that a pastor is an office that man has designated, and then the worldly church puts all kinds of unbiblical expectations on this office. But it's only mentioned one time in the Bible. You know the word pastor is only mentioned right here? You can search your English Bible. You can search your Greek or whatever language you read. One time, it's mentioned here. It means shepherd. God gave apostles and prophets. Those were the foundation. Then these evangelists were to go out and plant churches. And then who stays and leads those churches? Or who's raised up amongst the body to lead those churches? These are shepherds. 
The only time we see the noun is here, but we see the verb to shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. And you know who's told to shepherd there? Shepherd the flock of God among you? Elders. Elders are told to shepherd. And then we go back to Ephesians 4 and we see that shepherds are in office. And we see all these other descriptions of words like overseers, leaders. Elders are the most common word used. A pastor is an elder. An elder is a pastor. A pastor is an elder, is an overseer, is a church leader. You ought not to be this confused. And I know we, we often give the guy preaching the title pastor. That's, that's more of a modern concept in the church, and that's fine. But the Bible talks about pastors being elders and elders being pastors. Shepherds. What do they do? Why are they important to the church? Well, the Bible goes on to teach us that they pray for the church. They pray for the church, the whole church, and each member. They lead the church. That's what overseer means. It means to oversee generally what's happening in the church. They are to train up future teachers as they lead, future elders. So they pray, they lead, and they shepherd. Now, shepherding is very broad. You think of a shepherd who, who takes the sheep out to pasture. He, he takes them out to the water for a drink. He, he protects them from the wolves. A shepherd means that he exhorts, admonishes, encourages, administers the ordinances, guards the flock from false teaching, and exercises church discipline when needed. So pray, lead, shepherd, and teach. Pastors, elders are to teach. In fact, that's one of the qualifications. You can't even be or not supposed to be an elder or pastor unless you can teach. They have to have some measure of that teaching gift that we talked about last week where you can study the Bible, labor over that, and organize that material and present it clearly to others. There's a lot of pastors, a lot of elders in churches today that don't meet these qualifications. That's not even to go into the character qualifications, which you find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Let's go there. Titus 1. That doesn't get as much attention, I think, as a 1 Timothy passage. Titus 1, 5 through 9. We're spending a lot of time on this list because everything else flows from this list of offices that Christ has given the church. Titus 1 and verse 5. So you can go to Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3. Who's qualified to be one of these pastors, one of these elders? For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So there's a church in all these cities that Paul went through and evangelized. Paul was an evangelist as well. Namely, now he gives the list. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You find yourself in a new church and, and you're considering joining, you need to look at this list. You need to look at those four things that they are supposed to be doing and ask yourself, is that what I see? 
Generally, is that what I see? Do the leaders meet these qualifications? Are they doing these things like pray, lead, shepherd, and teach? Are they guarding the flock from false teaching? That's a real concern in today's age. You've got all these books coming into the church that are, have false teaching in them. You've got classes going on that are promoting false teaching. We've got to guard this church. Because in the American church, all this stuff is going on. I think that's the number one reason a church goes off track, is the elders, the leadership, aren't watching their sheep and themselves carefully. They're not watching their own life, and they're not watching the whole flock. That's when sheep go astray. Sometimes they'll decide to go astray on their own, and you've got to help bring them back. But if you fall asleep at your job as a shepherd, what's going to happen to the sheep? A large percentage of them will start going astray. Well, lastly, let's look at teachers. So you have pastors, and it says, and teachers. Now, sometimes folks have thought these are the same office. A pastor teaches, so this is talking about the same thing. But if you like to study Greek grammar, you can look at this passage and study it out. The Greek doesn't support that. Paul's giving us a list, and each of these items start with a specific connective, a de in Greek. But you come to pastors and teachers, and they're connected with this word and between them. You can even see it, I believe, in the NASB, based on the commas. Look at 4.11, and it says, some as prophets, comma, and some as evangelists, comma, and some as pastors and teachers. So there's no comma in between pastors and teachers. They are connected. They're just not exactly the same. And that makes sense. If you think about it, there are There are men, for example, in the church that teach that aren't elders. Teaching gift is is broader than the elder office, the pastor office. We spoke last week about the gift of teaching. Somebody who's able to take the scriptures, study them, organize them, and, and teach them clearly. And so you have a larger group called the teachers. And then inside of that group, you have pastors. That's how they're connected. Every pastor should be a teacher. But not every teacher is a pastor. I'll say it again, every pastor should be a teacher, but not every teacher is a pastor. They're connected, but they're different. Pastors are a subset of teachers. What is a teacher if it's not a pastor? Well, oh, these are people who are Sunday school teachers, seminary professors, Bible college professors, and even missionaries who are more focused on training up men in other countries to be pastors. Now, we looked at all five of these, and they deal with ministry of the word. Did you notice that? All of these are dealing with the ministry of the word. Apostles spoke and wrote the word. Prophets are the ones giving the word directly from God. Evangelists take the word out. Pastors and teachers bring the word to the flock. Leaders have to know the word. They've got to know the word of God and proclaim the word of God. And we've got to understand what those are. We have to. If we don't, then the church is it's not even being set up right if we don't understand what a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist are and that there's not prophets and apostles today. So that's number one, the uniqueness of the gifts. Now, what are they used for? Number two, the, the usefulness of the gifts. That's verse 12. What's their use? What, what are these gifted offices for? Well, Christ gave the church these offices for a much greater purpose. 
It's not simply for the person doing it. Paul was not an apostle for himself. He was an apostle for God's people. Those whom would be saved, the elect that would be saved from the gospel. And you're going to notice in verse 12 that there's three phrases. And these phrases tell us what these offices were given to the church for. And it's really a stair step going down through these phrases. One flows into the other, which flows into the other. First of all, he says, for the equipping of the saints. Why do we have pastors and teachers? To equip believers. To give you the tools, the materials that you need as a saint, as a holy one. As a person living in a sinful world, you need to be equipped. You need to be trained. You need to be taught. Each of you must be equipped by the shepherds of the church. That is one of their primary tasks. That's what a shepherd does. It's not for entertainment that he gave those offices. It's not just to make you feel good about yourself. It's for equipping. You need to be trained how to use the sword of the Spirit. You need to be trained how to use the shield and all these pieces of armor he'll get to later in the book of Ephesians. It's not enough just to have your spiritual gift either. I said this last week. You've got to be shown how to grow in it. You've got to have it sharpened. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Pastors and teachers are equipping you. Which means you've got to be here to be equipped. You've got to be here to be equipped on Sunday. And, and as much as you can, all the other things going on here. We have a class every Sunday morning. And it is called an equipping class based on this teaching right here. Right now, I've been equipping the people in the class on the Old Testament, how to understand the Old Testament. We've been in an Old, Old Testament survey before we did systematic theology. Frank's starting a class in a couple of weeks on spiritual disciplines, what you're to do every day in your life as a Christian. You've got to be here to be equipped. doesn't mean you have to be involved in every single thing the church offers, but as much as you're able, you should desire to be equipped, to be here, be engaged, to be teachable, be planted in the church. Secondly, the saints are equipped, and notice, for the work of service. That's the NASB. If you have another translation, it might say for the work of ministry. Service is ministry. We have ministers in other countries. Here in the U.S., we just have cabinet members, secretary this, secretary that. In other countries, they have the minister of such and such. The servant, he's serving the country in this capacity. The prime minister, the first servant. What does it mean that you are being equipped for the work of service? Well, it simply means that all members of the church ought to be serving. And they're, they're equipped. They're, you're given a shovel. You're given a spade. You're given a, a pitchfork. You're given a sword. You're given a shield. You're given a helmet. Now you've got to do something with it. You don't get equipped as a soldier or a farmer or a workman just to sit there. You get equipped to do something with it. And Paul says it's for the work of service. Pastors and teachers, that's the main ones in the church here from the list, are equipping believers so that they can do the work of service, actively serving the Lord and ministering to one another. This is an every member ministry. Now, some denominations have the clergy do all the ministry and the laity, that's everybody else, just lets them do 
the ministry while they receive the benefits of that ministry. What we practice here, and I think what the Bible clearly shows us, is that everybody is doing ministry. Everybody's doing ministry. Now, pastors and teachers are ministering the word. That's different. Ministering the word is serving the word. Now, not everybody's gifted that way. But everybody has a gift, remember? Verse 7. Everybody has a gift. And we're to be serving one another. We're to be working in the ministry together. The church ministry. The overall ministry. That's what you're being equipped for. And that's what you are to do. So he's exhorting them. He's, he's reminding them how this whole process works. Early on, we had a, a church plant going. You always get interesting people coming in through the church plant. And I can remember many times where people would come from their previous church to here. And they would say, well, you know, my pastor did all these things. And we expect you guys as elders to do all these things. And then the next person would come and they would have a list that was completely different from the first person. And they would say, my pastor did all these things. And so we would just take them to the scriptures and say, let's look at what the Bible calls an elder to do. Let's look at what the Bible calls an elder to do. Now that might be a need that they mention. Maybe their pastor was doing something good in the previous church. But first let's establish the offices in the church. Who's responsible for what? And you know what often we found? We would say to them, that sounds like a great idea. You should go and do that. Because pastors and teachers are equipping the saints for the work of service. Sometimes you have a great idea. It doesn't have to be an official ministry of the church. Work, serve, just start doing what you love. I talked about that for gifting last week. Do what you love to do in the church. See what happens with it. Maybe it becomes something so large that you need help and we send people to you as leaders of the church. We send people to help you and it becomes an official ministry, maybe down the road. Just do what you love, serve people, do the work of ministry in the church. What does that look like? Well, serving Christ through worshiping Him, loving Him, and obeying Him, certainly. Christ said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. John 12, 26. But it also means sharing the scriptures with others, evangelizing, praying with others, Visiting the sick and those in prison. These are just coming from different places in the gospel where Jesus tells us what to do. Caring for other believers' physical and financial needs. Caring for widows and orphans. Taking up an offering to help believers in need. Service means helping others in the church. Well, look, he's got one more phrase here. To the building up of the body of Christ. This is the last step in this verse. Pastors and teachers are equipping. They're training you. They're giving you the tools you need so that you can all serve one another. And the ultimate purpose is to the building up of the body of Christ. I thought God builds up. He does through us. God saves somebody because you take and proclaim the gospel to them. They have to hear the word, Romans 10. God, in the same way, sanctifies us by other people Building us up. We're all being built up together by one another. As a church, we're all being built up. We're, we're constructing something that God has designed here. God's laid it out. He's doing the work through us, though, to make it happen. Notice how much 
architectural language Paul continues to use here. We're, we're building up the church when we serve one another, when we use our gifts. What does a foreman on the job do? A foreman on the job or a ranch, but especially on, a, let's say, a work site. They're training, showing new people how to work. They're teaching them how to be careful. Watch out for this danger. Watch out for that. They're protecting them by safety standards. That's the pastors and teachers. Then you have the workers. What are they doing? They're doing the work of the church. And actually, the analogy doesn't fit perfect because even the foremen are workers in the church, right? Well, that's the idea Paul is saying here. We're all building this building together. This is why when people aren't part of the church, they're not working together, not building the church. If you're here, that's good. You're helping to build. If you join, you're making an official commitment as a member to do that. But this idea that you can sit at home as a Christian and not be a part of a church, what are you helping to build? If it was just you by yourself at home, not just because you moved to the area and you're looking for a church, but long extended periods of time where, where people just watch sermons on the internet. You know, Ligonier did a study on that a few years ago. 50% of Americans said that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. A third of evangelical Protestants said being at home by yourself is a replacement for regularly attending church. John Calvin had something to say about that in his day. He said, those who neglect this instrument, instrument that we're talking about here, the building up of the body of Christ, the church, those who neglect this instrument should hope to become perfect in Christ. That's utter madness. Yet such are the fanatics, he calls them. You know, we're kind of cautious and careful and soft today. But in Luther and Calvin's day, and Jesus' day, they would call people fanatics, lunatics. And he says, who pretend to be, these fanatics who pretend to be favored with secret revelations of the Spirit and proud men, on the other who imagine that to them, the private reading of Scripture is enough, and that they have no need of the ordinary ministry of the church, the service, the ministry, the work of the church. Well, let's move on to number three now we have the unity of the gifts. So God has given gifted offices to the church. They're for the purpose. The purpose is to be used to train and build up the saints. But what's the ultimate goal? What's the goal that we're aiming at with all of this? It's the unity. The unity in the church. Complete edification and unity. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain. How long will this process keep going on in the church and throughout Christ's church all over the world? Until we all attain three things. How long? Until we get these three things. We don't get to just sit back and, and take a nap on the couch as a Christian for years and years. We're working on these things basically until Christ comes back is what he's going to say. And even if you yourself, even if you yourself were made mature in Christ through this process, that's not the goal. Look what he says. First of all, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The faith here is an objective faith. The content of Christian doctrine. 
How long are you to be doing this process where, where either you're training others or you're being trained and then you're building up the body? How long? And two, we're all unified around the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of the gospel. It makes no sense for a church to be divided. Right now, there's all this division. Well, the gospel's important, but we've got to do this in the world. God wants us to do this in the world. God left us a clear mission, a very clear mission. And in the church, we are building one another up into the unity of the faith. We ought to know what this Christian faith is about and be studying it in our Bibles and learn of the knowledge of the Son of God. What kind of knowledge? Well, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these scriptures that testify about me. We're to study the scriptures and study the scriptures and learn about Christ's preexistence, his deity, his humanity, his mediation, incarnation, life and death, gospel, faith, repentance, resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, his propitiation, his intercession, his coming kingdom. Don't worry, you have the rest of your life. You don't have to learn all that today. You got your whole life. That's, that's his point. We're not to sit back and take a break from these things. Yeah, we get a nap here and there like Jesus on the boat, right? But we're to be working and training and serving until we are all together on this, which is a lifelong work. Secondly, to a mature man. It's just another way of saying the same thing, but he, he describes it different here. To a mature man. The goal of the church is to be mature. All of us, he says, until we all, no one's left out here. No one's left out. We're all to be mature. We're all to be mature in the faith. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. This goal, like the other two, is, is not going to be fully attained until Christ's return, but we are to be working at that. Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a goal we're working at here. What is that goal? To know the Scripture so we know Christ and doctrine. To be mature in the faith. And then thirdly, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's hard to understand in English. It's hard to translate into English. Probably better, something along the lines of to attain to the measure which is Christ's full stature. In other words, how do we measure ourselves? How do we know when we've arrived? We compare ourselves to Christ. We compare ourselves to His stature, not His physical stature, but His, we might say, spiritual stature. His love for God. His love for mankind. Whenever you've reached that point, then you've grown up and you've reached the measure of the fullness of Christ. Which we all know won't happen until we see Christ, but we are to be working. That's our goal. That is our goal. Christ's likeness. Every believer and the corporate church. It's not good enough that I am edified and built up to be more like Christ and mature. But I've got to make sure my brother and my sister in Christ is as well. And my children. And my parents, if they were here. Paul says in Galatians 4, my children. He calls them my children with whom I begin in labor until Christ is formed in you. It's like he's got to go through the birth process again. He's already birthed the church. 
And now he's got to go through it again as they're struggling with this false teaching amongst them. The goal is to be like Christ. And we measure ourselves not according to what our brother or sister's done, but according to Christ. So Paul says, look, the church ought to be unified. And, and Christ has given specific leaders in the church to unify the church. And we're all being equipped by those leaders. And we're all serving one another. And the goal is to be more like Christ. That's it. It's not to be the biggest church in town, the coolest church in town, the loudest church in town. It's to be more like Christ. That's all we care about. Everything else is just to serve that purpose. The chairs, the lighting, sound equipment. We are to be more like Christ and we find Christ here. Of course, he's in us, but we get to know him in his word. So let's all do that together. Amen. Father, we bow before you today to meditate on and think about this precious text here. We're all doing the work of ministry. We need your help in it. We can't do it without you, God. Drive us to your word so that we would see the truth. Drive us to Christ. Empower us with the Spirit. We want to be one church, one mind, one body here. And I thank you, Lord, that you have built this church. For five years, you have built this church up. We are more mature today, God, than we were five years ago. And so I pray, Father, you will continue that work here. Keep the candle lit here. Keep us burning for the Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.